0: Welcome back to Fintech Insider at the International Fintech Conference by Her Majesty's Treasury. Um, so I'm joined by the Right Honorable John Glenn, who is the Economic Secretary to the Treasury. Thank you very much for being on Fintech Thank Insider. You. Thanks for being here. So number of interesting announcements today. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the one that caught my eye, as somebody who's worked in fintech and blockchain for quite some time, was the announcement of a crypto asset tax task force. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is?
1: Well, I think... As you said, a lot of people are very interested in what what is blockchain, what is cryptocurrency, what does it mean. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said to, to the Chancellor, I think in one of my early conversations with him when I was appointed in January, we need to really get to grips with this. And uh, I'm really pleased that we are putting this task force together. The attempt that what we really want the task force to do is get the Bank of England, get the FCA, get the Treasury together, and mm-hmm. say what is this, what are the opportunities, mm-hmm. what are the risks. How do we respond in terms of regulation or not? Um, What are the tax implications? What's the size of the global market? What are the savings potentially that exist by using this technology uh, as a better means of of arranging payments or whatever? So this task force is designed to advise government um, in a sensible way. Uh, It could come up with anything, Mm -hmm. but I hope it will be a meaningful uh, marker for where the government should respond and how we should respond as a country.
0: Indeed, because the UK government Office for Science did a report distributed ledger beyond blockchain that was well received internationally. Yeah. Um, the uh, and Mark, the Governor of Bank of England, Mark Carney, put out some speeches recently, both with from the FSB and from the Bank of England yeah. in the subject. And hopefully, the UK can be seen as a thought leader if there is an yes, emerging technology. That's exactly
1: project. what I want to happen. And, uh, of course, Mark Carney has made some comments on it. I mean, at the moment, in terms of the size and the the principal thing you look at is the risk to the economy. And I Mm -hmm. think at this moment there isn't a risk to the economy. Uh, I'd want to understand where the opportunity is.
0: Um, Excellent. Um, So there's an interesting term uh, as well around robo-regulation. This is the idea that small fintech companies could work or or even banks could work with a regulator in a way that has less paperwork. Could you just uh, maybe explain uh, what that is for our listeners perhaps?
1: Obviously, after the banking crisis of the last 10 years, um, you know, there's been a legitimate and necessary review of what sort of regulation we need. And there's been a a lot more regulation necessarily to avoid the sort of risks that we and the situation we got into at the time of the crash. But also technology is a great opportunity for it in all areas of our lives and even in uh, financial regulation because at this point you see lots of regulations come out of regulatory bodies like the FCA and uh, banks and financial institutions have to take on board that regulation they have to work out how to apply it they have to then interpret it they have to issue guidance you know that can be expensive mm-hmm. by you know creating an automatic mechanism for regulation to be absorbed and to uh, be relayed to the front line of businesses you, you create a potential saving. Mm. Um, uh, less resources need to be expended on on um, compliance costs. So we are world leaders in this area. Um, other regulators have not got to this point yet. There's more work to be done, but I think it's important that we do where we can use technology in an effective way, do it at regulatory level.
0: You mentioned global. Uh, we also announced, uh, I heard we heard announced earlier that there's a f- new fintech bridge between the UK and Australia. Mm. Yeah. What is a fintech bridge? <laughs>
1: Well, it's, it's been about 12, 14 months uh, in preparation. I mean, it, it's designed to provide an easy uh, mechanism for uh, Australian entrepreneurs, for UK entrepreneurs to really understand each other's regulatory environments and create an easier passage to access those markets both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that We've had uh, a number of other bridges in the past and there are a number of other countries that would like to have one. Um, but it just makes that un- process of understanding an easier one. Otherwise, you can understand an Australian entrepreneur comes to London, well, how am I going to get access to the market? How am I going to be licensed to operate here? This brings all the right people together in the industry and in the, and the regulators, and is an extension of the sort of sandbox principle, uh, in essence, and it and it allows. Uh, you know that dialogue to you know, enable entrepreneurial activity. You know that's what this this that's what this whole conference is about is allowing the expansion of fintech um, in what is already a good space.
0: Indeed, I saw upstairs there's nearly 150 fintech companies here on the yeah. exhibition floor. Real kind of tour de force of different companies, big yeah. and small, in the fintech space. Um, there's also an announcement of regional fintech envoys because mm-hmm. I think that historically fintech had been quite London-centric, and now we're seeing uh, Bristol and Manchester and yeah. um, other parts of the UK. Up into Edinburgh Leeds, as well, and Edinburgh, and, yeah. yeah. As a as a Leeds boy, I'm very proud to see uh, <laughs> West Yorkshire representing. Yeah. Um, so, so what are the role of the regional fintech envoys?
1: Well, it'll be to look at where there are opportunities to grow fintech outside of, of uh, London, which is obviously because of the proximity to the financial markets and regulator and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, has always been this the f- sort of centre. And um, you know, you're right. We're going to have a, an envoy in Wales, Northern Ireland. Um, and uh, one for the for the rest of England and England regions, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's really important that we um, and Scotland, of course, um, that we recognise where there are the right sort of synergies between universities mm-hmm. and um, skills and financial institutions. Then we should you know, get on and try and make it grow there
0: as well. Excellent. Uh, the, there's an, I've observed, uh, and I think it, uh, somebody who's worked in a fintech company is somebody who's worked for a bank trying to work with fintechs, so that it's, it's very difficult for small companies to partner with the big banks. And I think there's a bit of a culture clash, there's processes, there's costs. Um, are there any new standards or are there any ways we can help fintechs to partner more with those big banks? And do we think um, we'll see more of that in the future?
1: Well, I think we're seeing some big changes with respect to um, the open banking regime, Mm -hmm. which I think encourages innovation. It encourages a greater intimacy between banks and their customers as more products and more opportunities to understand customer needs uh, and develop new products for them grows. So I understand your point, but I think that banks and big institutions are changing in terms of their attitude because they can see fintech companies challenger banks and and, and fintechs coming in and, and offering you know, you know, access to uh, or you know setting up markets and uh, that will threaten them. Yeah. So they they have got to respond. Um, so I think some of the you know this is about disruptive technology, which is an opportunity for everyone. It's an opportunity for the consumer to get access to new services uh, in a more accessible form, and it 's an opportunity for banks too to develop their client relationships with with new products so I think I welcome this disruption it 's positive for the consumer. You know, I think watch this space for
0: you. One of the things I find interesting is when you see a feature in a fintech app, the big banks tend to have that feature six or 12 months later. So it certainly hopefully is, is driving the, yeah. the change we're looking for. Um, there's a Connect with Work program um, that's, it's, uh, that's been kind of been announced, but it's focused a lot on uh, science, technology, uh, engineering and mathematics. Um, can we start to really combat this perceived match as two men sitting on a podcast, yeah. this macho culture yeah. uh, in fintech and finance and what more can be done there
1: well women in finance is a key uh, responsibility of mine uh, mm. as the city minister and I'll be before the uh, Treasury Select Committee next week addressing this I mean we've the main thing that we've done is to have the charter and we've had 200 companies sign up for that mm. and we announced that uh, just last week I, I think there are some issues around culture mm. in some financial institutions yes it's great to have targets but Thirty percent or higher in some mm-hmm. cases of people getting to the board, but what we really want to see is an environment where you know there are no real barriers lower down so that the pool of of candidates for board positions is much stronger in terms of uh, female representation and these are quite challenging things to break down there's some work done by Virgin for example to change the way jobs are classified and described that actually creates a barrier mm-hmm. um, but basically, I think there is lots of, uh, of, you know, projects and work that can be done to address this. Uh, You're right to say it's been a problem in, in city and financial institutions. And, you know, we've got to continue to try and improve where we are
0: at. The moment. Uh, indeed, and, and uh, we as a small fintech company are doing everything we can and have to do more. Uh, there's also the uh, Connect with Work program. Um, uh, could we look to uh, expand that to tap non-UK talent? Because one of the things that fintechs often talk to me about is you know, really helping get talent into the country um, sometimes has been kind of challenging. Could we could we do more there? Do you expect to see more there? And, and, and what, what do you say to those fintechs? Companies who are looking to be able to do that?
1: Well, I think at the moment we see um, masses of people working in fintech in London and across the United Kingdom. And I don't think that there's a a shortage of access to the right talent. And, you know, we're obviously going through a process at the moment as we exit the uh, EU. Um, We will have new arrangements in place. And I think all of these sort of matters are for discussion, obviously, liaison with my colleagues in the Home Office. But I'm not hearing today a you know, big problem in terms of access to the right talent. Um, you know, we've got a lot of homegrown talent. We've also got, you know, global investors coming here to, to, to seek to develop businesses in London.
0: It is interesting. We we wrote this question down and then um, I went and asked several other people on the exhibition floor and they were like, no, we're hiring great people is hard but finding lots of people isn't hard and, and there's always, the, the, they're looking for the best person but not finding, you know, so there's, the, it's a different type of challenge I think that's that often perceived. Yeah. Uh, there's an interesting uh, point here about uh, you know, global firms require global capital uh, and seed funding, follow on funding, mm-hmm. uh, there's always been this kind of question in the UK and now we have seen some of the fintech companies, the Monza's, the Oak North, the TransferWise, reach a certain maturity. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we, we can start to get to follow-on funding. But is there a bit of a gap now coming in the seed Series A? And what can we do to attract global capital into the UK?
1: Well, I think we see a range of options. And you know, I think at very early stages, you see uh, you know, networks. And there are strong networks in London of, mm. of you know high net worth people, people. Um, you know, private offices, and then you go to VCs, you go to the uh, move up the scale. And I think at the moment, we've got an interesting, um, ecosystem of options. I think that there are no systemic, uh, gaps that, that are causing difficulties. I think as we, you know, we sit in London where we've got such a developed capital market, we've got great pools of capital and we've got a great appetite to invest in a range of, of, of risk profiles. Um, You know, this is something that the government is always looking at. And I was with the chancellor. We were talking to some investors uh, just earlier in in a workshop. And, um, you know, there were some ideas about how we can develop that and make London more attractive. Um, But I don't foresee difficulties because at the the core of this is an industry that has a level of maturity, a coming together of the English language, Mm -hmm. the the legal sort of framework Mm -hmm. and the, the technology Technical skills, as well as the financial wherewithal through the city, so that is difficult to replicate um, if you 're talking about the challenges, I think there is a challenge with respect to growing businesses beyond a certain size, and that 's why we 've got the um, british business bank and the and other institutions that we 're trying to get involved to you know give people the ambition. I think the guy from uh, Oak North said in the opening remarks you know. You, 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 is, is, in California, you sell something for 100 million, and you, and you think, well, why? Right. You know, why haven't you been keen to get to that unicorn status? Uh-huh. Um, we need to have that ambition in 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 London more, um, and startups need to have that but that's a cultural att- attitude. It's not necessarily an access to, to finance.
0: Uh, completely. And I do hope we, we, we see a lot more of those uh, those good news stories coming out in London as, as, uh, as I think there's been a number of advantages. One of the things I found is that uh, there aren't many cities in the world where the kind of uh, policymaking, the finance and tech are all in the same place, surrounded by six of the top 20 universities in the world. Right. I still think that's a, a, a very powerful uh, thing to be able to offer the world. Uh, so as you look into the next sort of uh, coupling What's exciting you at the moment and what excites you at a conference uh, like this today? Well, I have a lot of
1: responsibilities in this particular role and this has to be one of my most enjoyable mm-hmm. roles uh, working in an industry that is a global leader with people that are not asking for lots of government intervention or tax breaks or financial um, enablement. They're asking for uh, evolution, appropriate evolution in uh, regulatory um Contexts and support as as they try and develop new markets, but they're keen to do that on their own. Mm. And I've seen lots of uh, heard lots of positive comments about where we where we are at the moment with respect to enablement and you know the sort of tax regime that we've set up in the United Kingdom, which does encourage the entrepreneurial activity that is at the core of fintech. So, I'm optimistic about the future of the economy in the UK. I'm I'm very optimistic about uh, FinTech, that it will continue to be a global leader um, if we can continue to look at conferences like this, anticipating changes and maximizing the opportunities for the UK.
0: Fantastic. John Glenn MP, thank you very much for being on FinTech Insider. Thank you. Okay, I am here with the one and only David Duffy, who is the CEO of CYT. BG. Have I said that right? You have. Uh, I, I always wonder if there's like a Sigabu. <laughs> <something. laughs> it's to the Yorkshire Banking Group, so you got it right. Yes, of course. And as a proud Yorkshireman, uh, <laughs> I'm very glad to have you on the show. Um, but you've had, held a number of roles throughout the world, so you bring a bit of uh, international context to where we are today, which is the uh, FinTech Conference from HM Treasury. Uh, and the Chancellor announced a number of things today, especially a bridge with Australia. Yes. Uh, what do you think this really is going to mean for customers and FinTech business and finance business?
2: Well, I I think the the bridge for Australia is very interesting to me because we have 76% of our shareholder base is Australian. I was recently there. So that's from a company-specific perspective, but also they're adopting open banking in a big way. They've copied a lot of the innovation from the UK and they have their own innovations. So I think from a a broader perspective, we can connect those two communities. And it's probably the largest bridge of the series that the Chancellor has announced. And I think we can connect the fintechs and we can connect the customers through all, all of that innovation and i think everybody can come off better you know they can grow businesses get investment sell their product a whole range of
0: things it's about helping those businesses get funded then producing new solutions for customers have you seen any uh, interesting fintech businesses recently or have you been working on anything along those sides and what, what can you learn from fintech and what do you think fintech can learn from more established banks perhaps?
2: well i think it's interesting i think there's a shift in the debate when i first got involved in this a few years ago the debate was them and us. It's big versus smaller, middle versus smaller. It was more confrontation, more complex uh, agendas. Right now, it's moved much more to collaboration. And, and to give a specific example, as you as you raise it, uh, we've established a fintech uh, partner in terms of an SME product, connected them to our core system, and uh, SMEs can access fifty thousand in ten minutes straight through online wow. and be funded the same day. Now, that used to take six to eight weeks or even longer. Um, and, and that's an example of not being in competition with each other. But the fintech doesn't have millions of customers. We do. Yeah. We have uh, probably a less effective solution than they've designed with their technology, to put it kindly. Mm-hmm. And if you put the two together, we both win. So I think that's the model. If you talk about fintech stimulating an economy. It's that collaboration model rather than a conflict model. What I love about that is it's a working partnership. It's live and it's real. We hear a lot about, well, we're going to collaborate. We're
0: going to collaborate. But other than one or two examples, it's hard to find public examples of where you have collaborated. Yeah. What advice would you give to a fintech company that wants to collaborate with an institution? What what should they be doing and how can they make the best of that?
2: Well, I think for... Um, a fintech, they will come perhaps without some of the broad knowledge of regulation, uh, the contextual side of things, which makes it hard for a business. But I think at the end of the day, a little patience on their side, but not too much patience and a level of, of, of tolerance, but also challenge the, the, the bank to be more innovative and the bank will challenge the, tech company or the the FinTech to be more thoughtful about realities of the world. If you get that mix, right, I've I've seen it work for us, it took for a while with this FinTech, a lot of time for us to learn how to work with their thinking. Uh, And then once we got better at that, it took a while, then we had to look at them and we had to figure out what they were doing, trying to achieve their outcome, but not realizing that there were certain gating issues were non discussable, they were regulatory. So learning on both sides. I think it's adopt a patient attitude, but don't be overly tolerant of each other. You know, really force each other. You've got to be able
0: to challenge in a constructive way, uh, but build the relationships. This is one of the things that's actually as old as time. It's really about building the relationships between those organizations, I guess.
2: That's right. I think you you do have to just think of this as we're both going to grow in scale from this business opportunity, and it's a long-term option. So be thoughtful and be open about that.
0: And do you think that there's uh, an internationalization of access to capital coming? Do you think that uh, really, you know, you, you have worked around the world. Uh, do you see that fintechs can start to uh, really have more of an international presence if they start to partner with organizations like your own um, in different parts of the world and learn I, with one? I,
2: I absolutely think so. I think when when I've looked at, you know, becoming a fintech envoy, really it is about that opportunity to to take what a person is doing in terms of their business, and to leverage it globally. So it doesn't have to be one location, because they're not solving a geography problem, they're solving an access problem, or a, a science problem, or a technology delivery problem, but that's portable. So if we can give them the opportunity to meet, give them the opportunity to present to all kinds of different parties in different jurisdictions, with different levels of capital access, I think you can really help fintech scale up. And they may not have those connections. They may not know of those relevant parties. But in my particular world, I've lived in Singapore. I've lived in Asia, Africa. I've kind of lived everywhere. Um, And I can see that uh, the portability across borders is a huge opportunity to leverage the UK's fintech option. Fantastic. Well, it's about looking for those win-wins. David Duffy,
0: CEO of CYBG. Thank you very much for being on Fintech Insider. Thank you for having me. Great. So I am here once again. With the one and only Eileen Burbage, who's not only FinTech's special envoy, but you're also, what is it, a passion capital? You Just are a partner. Just a partner. <laughs> but the partner um, and uh, a good friend of FinTech Insider, having been on before as well. Um, so interesting today uh, at the FinTech conference, you obviously did a speech and the Chancellor's announced a number of things, yeah. a number of initiatives. Where are we at with FinTech right now? Are we finding ourselves in a position where you know the bridges to the other parts of the world are going to be needed? And uh, what do you think? Uh, this means for small fintech companies in in the UK.
3: Sure, lots of questions in there. Sorry but, about you know, that. It gives I got me excited. a chance to get all my messages out. No, so I think first of all, with respect to the sort of uh, sector fintech itself, I think we're really still in early days. Really so that's part of why it's so exciting, because as much energy as there is now, and as much support there is from all across the the industry, whether it's existing financial services institutions or government ministers or policymakers or regulators. We're really just at the beginning, so that just means there's much more to come. Having said that, with the UK position, we're clearly leading from the front right now. We are the world's leading fintech hub, and I think there had been questions or doubts over the last year if we were going to be able to maintain that, and what this conference and a lot of the conversations already have shown is we've definitely maintained that leadership position, and we're probably reinforcing it for years to come.
0: There were some interesting policies today. Um, The one that really caught my eye was actually probably one many people might have ignored, which is this idea that um, we're going to look at how we can do regulation through robotics or automated. more autom Yeah, that, that automated regulation. Yeah. How do you think about what that means for fintech businesses, especially? Yeah. Well,
3: I think there's a couple of things. I think first of all, it just genuinely reflects and underscores that our regulators and our policymakers here in the UK really are thought leaders. And the fact that they are actually gonna sort of walk their own walk mm-hmm. and try and sort of embrace technology to make what they do more efficient. And sort of more addressable and relatable for their sort of stakeholders or their customers, if you will. I think that's absolutely brilliant.
0: Yeah, because historically, you had to almost be a big company and have a lot of people to deal with all the paper exactly. the are regulating. And you And give. to
3: build that relationship and to have the back channel and to have the access and the communications. And so automating that and simplifying it and making it very straightforward and more accessible. Is really going to almost, you know, democratize or sort of just make it more accessible for, as you say, really small fintech companies uh, to get on the sort of ladder.
0: But they're also good at tech by default, so hopefully they'll they'll be able to work with that. So there was um, uh, you were on the BBC News uh, News Night last night uh, talking about uh, kind of the tech backlash and and consumer opinions of tech. Does that bleed into fintech because people are you know, really close to their money, they're close to their data. We've got general data protection regulation coming. You know, is it harder than ever to be a fintech because of this data piece?
3: I don't know that it's harder than ever because of this. And I probably wouldn't use the metaphor bleed over into. i mm-hmm. I'll try and be more positive about it. But I certainly think there are lessons to be learned. And there are real ramifications that obviously pertain to financial services as much as they do sort of social networking, or politics in general elections. And I think that is first and foremost, uh, sort of a message or a lesson learned of transparency, mm-hmm. authenticity, and sort of being customer centric in what's being delivered, whether it is a social network, whether it's advertising, whether it's financial services. And I think that is crucially important and just being really magnified uh, over these last few days.
0: One of the things I saw is, um, I think it was Monzo won a fairer Finance Award for how they approach uh, terms and conditions and there's, there's signals in the market here about how you communicate complex stuff to customers and that's something that fintech might start to bring in more of And uh, but we do find ourselves in a position where the, kind of the established companies like the Monzos, like the Oak Norths have really grown and that's why the funding looks great but at the lower end um, maybe we're still looking for that second third wave. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned earlier prop tech and some other areas where we might start to see that come from. You're obviously in a position where you're looking at these companies every day. Do you think the funding situation is still strong here or do you think kind of looking globally and using fintech bridges is going to be the way in which we we attract more funding?
3: Yeah, and good point because I'm sorry you asked that before and I didn't get to touch on that. But I think Absolutely. We're going to see the next wave. And it's just—it's not even been a wave. We've just had this constant volume, which I think is fantastic. Also love that you think of Oak North and Monzo as sort of established players. Mm-hmm. Monzo only being three years old, but it's brilliant because it means it's sort of cemented in your mind. Well,
0: t- But I'm a fintech nerd, right? I so. think <laughs>
3: that we've got enough of the elements here in the UK to foster the right kind of environment for one to start and grow a fintech business right here in the UK and scale to the extent of an Oak North or a Monzo. Mm-hmm. What the fintech bridges enable, and I don't think they're necessarily I'm gonna double use that word, a necessity uh, for a FinTech to be able to grow and scale, but it certainly helps and it reduces friction Once a fintech that's based in the UK or started in the UK starts to internationalize or wants to expand and go to another market, it's really going to reduce the friction and just help them land in a new market without having to start from scratch from a regulatory point of view.
0: Yeah, it's really powerful if the FCA is able to do kind of uh, the bridges as well. So they announced their global sandbox initiative along with these bridges. It does appear like if you build a business here, you can go to another country, but at the same way, we're bringing people in. Exactly.
3: We're inviting other innovators to come in and to service the UK market. And like you said uh, earlier about transparency and what we're going to start seeing, and you were saying we're hoping to see it. Actually, I just mentioned like TransferWise, who was actually, uh, Talvit, one of the co-founders, was a keynote speaker at this event last year. That whole business, TransferWise, is not a new product. It's money transfer, it's remittance, it's cross-border payments, much like Western Union has done for about 150 years. But they sort of positioned themselves and built up a billion-dollar market value just based on transparency and customer service.
0: Authenticity. Um, exactly. Transparency breeds authenticity, and maybe the reason we've seen a tech backlash is because they got away a little bit from that authenticity, and hopefully we we can see that come back strong and, and serve customers as well. Exactly. Island mm-hmm. Burbage, thank you very much for being on FinTech Insider once again.
3: Thanks for having me again. Thank you
0: so much. Thank you. Welcome back to Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by Al-Lukis CBE from Motive Partners and the Prime Minister's Fintech Envoy. Thank you for being on Fintech Insider. Great to be here. Uh, It's been a busy day. You've had a busy um, 14 months from the sounds of it. Um, At the uh, Fintech conference today, uh, the Chancellor announced – idea called fintech bridges is it called um can you explain briefly what is a fintech bridge um we announced one with australia i believe
4: yeah um well thanks thanks for having us and and you know perhaps more importantly having been in uh in fintech for for 20 years by coincidence not by judgment um you know thank you and, and your team for all the work you do to promote the space because you know the uk um hasn't had an easy 10 years whether that be through referendums or financial crashes but fintech's one of the things we're very proud of so mm-hmm. thank you very much for all your support a fintech bridge uh, was a concept that that we came up with a few years ago um where trying to get a, a, an extended domestic market. So if you think of an entrepreneur's challenge when they're building a business in any industry, but particularly in fintech, you're, you're, you're building a business plan, you're saying when my service goes live, either B2C or B2B to, B to C, these are the number of customers that I can get to. Yes. And you know, selling to one bank's hard enough, selling to lots of banks is very, very complicated. If you're going direct to consumer, you've got to spend a lot of money on on building a brand and a profile. Mm-hmm. The idea behind the fintech bridges was to find nations that have similar financial services centres, have very similar approach to sort of right-touch regulation, so as we have here the ability to be a bit more open between the regulator and the consumers and the, and the, and the product providers and the banks. Um, and so we've signed four so far before this morning, Singapore, China, Hong Kong and South Korea. It, candidly, although they're fantastic bridges, they were early and so we were learning. We've worked very hard on the Australia one for a number of reasons. Asia is clearly a critical market um, for fintech companies from the UK and from all over the world. Australia is a fantastic hub for that market. Australia's banks survived the financial crisis incredibly well um, because of some of the work of their prudential authority. They have $2.8 trillion of superannuation pensions um, on their balance sheet and they have a really thriving fintech community. Australian companies look to London as their gateway to the rest of the world. We look to Australia as our gateway into Asia. The fintech bridge considers four things, government-to-government, regulator-to-regulator, business-to-business, and people-to-people collaboration. So will it take its full form today? No. It's been signed. It's the beginning of a journey. How could it end up? You could end up with an Australian fintech entrepreneur launching a service in Sydney and the next day being able to launch it in London. Yeah. And that gives them an amazing opportunity to expand their product. Base.
0: It's a really interesting target state to try and get to. And as well, we both have uh, real-time payment systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the Australia awesome. just put a real-time payment system in. the UK has a real-time payment Absolutely. system. The UK um, uh, has been looking at how do I give fintech companies access to real time payments than we've seen Clearbank and others in Australia we're just seeing the first challenger banks and I think there's there's some really interesting similarities that we'll Absolutely. start to see come out of those so can you give me um, an example of uh, some of the um, things we expect to see coming from the fintech bridges uh, in the next couple of months and what the program looks like. Are we going to see more countries? Are we going to see more work? What, what's really exciting you at the moment?
4: Yeah, uh, thanks. And, and you've given a great example, the UK. We've never been particularly good at congratulating ourselves. It's a bit of a societal embarrassment, but you know, our faster payments network is the envy of many countries around the world. Um, you know, Our Oyster transport mechanisms are a very cool example of a fintech mm-hmm. solution. We have lots of assets and many of the standards in financial services have been built here in the UK. So it's great when other nations replicate them because it gives you that kind of synergy and the collaboration opportunity. Fintech bridges are going to continue. There'll be more fintech bridges with like-minded nations. Clearly, everyone knows that we can't sign new free trade agreements until after March the 29th next year. Mm-hmm. But think of these bridges as a bridge to a free trade agreement. And they yeah. give us a chance to explore together the art of the possible. To your question about what happens next in the Australia Bridge. Both sides of that bridge are putting together their sort of welcome parties. Think of it like sort of embassies of the ecosystem. People in Treasury and you know take this opportunity. Gwyneth Nurse, Phil Vidler, the team at Treasury who who put these bridges together have worked tirelessly to get this done with their equivalents on the other side. So what you get is you get this sort of cluster of the level 39s and the stone and chalks, you get the investors coming Mm -hmm. together, you get the regulator coming together, talking, having constant dialogue. And so when you're a UK company that goes on a trade mission, as we did with the Lord Mayor of London, Charles Bowman, a few weeks ago, you get down to Australia and you're suddenly talking to like-minded people Mm -hmm. who are solving exactly the same challenges and you say, wow, there's a real collaboration opportunity. What does it look like post-Brexit? No one really wants to predict what happens post-Brexit, but I'd like to see elements of what we put in the bridge then taken forward into a free trade agreement.
0: Fantastic. And then there was one other thing that I saw today that was really interesting to me. Um, there was this announcement around robo-regulation or making it easier for small fintech firms to deal with the regulator with technology rather rather than with uh, kind of just forms and lawyers and so on. What do you think that might mean
4: for a small company? Look, well, first of all, we have to applaud it. It's <clears throat> it's very easy for us to be cynical. Um, very easy for us to say, yeah, the government has talked about going online. We remember Tony Blair in the early 2000s talking about broadband Britain and everyone getting access to the internet. And It's easy to throw stones. Any initiative that tries to make things easier for businesses has to be good news, right? We're a nation of shopkeepers, of small businesses. Um, and, and any minute of any day that you spend tied up in red tape is 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 not a productive minute. So <clears throat> I think nowadays we're so used to intuitive front-end design we find our airbnbs and our apples excuse me and our googles and our Amazons so easy to use that actually many of the next generation who are the entrepreneurs of the future just aren't used to dealing with the sort of paperwork and the way that things have been done historically and deciphering it and so what i believe the government is is committing to do is saying let's make this as simple it doesn't mean that it's easier regulation to comply with doesn't mean that necessarily you're going to get through the sandbox quicker or anything else but it's just presenting things in a way that are much more intuitive
0: so it's great that that's that's all making it easier um, and some wonderful announcements today if people want to find out more about uh, motive partners or what you're up to uh, is there a website they can go to or do you have a twitter handle that they can follow you on
4: yeah, so motivepartners.com, um, earlier this week, as part of the broader fintech week, uh, the team at Motive launched their innovation and investment center. So Motive Partners is a private equity fund, but but rather unusually, it's a stage agnostic. Mm-hmm. So it invests in everything from startup right through to large scale investment. And in Canary Wharf and in the World Trade Center in New York, we have two innovation and, and investment centers. So um Canary Wharf is the place to go and find Motive Partners or, or online, as you say. Thank you very much for being on Fintech Insider. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Welcome back to Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by the CEO of the London Stock Exchange, uh, Nicol Rossi. How are you, sir? Very well. Great uh, to be here. Thank you for being on our little podcast, Fintech Insider, the littlest big podcast in the world. Uh, So you've had a number of interesting roles. You worked for the UK Treasury. You're now in industry. You see fintech, I guess, from an interesting perspective, both from within government and now, now the industry side. Is it fair to say that fintech was very consumer-focused and maybe now is coming to financial markets?
5: I think that's right. Fintech is changing global capital markets, and we're seeing that in in our business in the London Stock Exchange group. We have fintech applications all over our business, all over the world. I'll give you a couple um, of examples. London Stock Exchange, one of our key objectives is keeping the markets clean and making sure there's no abusive behaviour in the market. Now, applications like artificial intelligence, machine learning, are right at the heart of what we do uh, to make sure we are uh, doing what we need to do to keep the markets fair and orderly. Uh, you're seeing also, I think, in the banks, um, after crisis, there was a big issue and um, with um, things like money laundering and know your clients, fintech applications are making it possible for banks to cooperate um, and sort those big global issues out in ways that just weren't possible before.
0: Absolutely. And so those fintech companies are partnering with larger organizations like yourself. What would, advice would you give to a fintech company that wants to partner with a London Stock Exchange Group, for instance?
5: Come and talk to us. Uh, we are uh, leading capital market in the world for companies wanting to raise capital for fintech but also a fantastic uh, place where people can network um, and exchange ideas uh, our elite program for small and medium-sized businesses um, has a number of fintech companies uh, on there and uh, we even had fintech companies from elite um, who have used crowdfunding uh, to finance themselves move on to uh, a listing uh, on our markets so come and talk to us um, and Uh, come and pitch your ideas. We're all all very interested and we can connect you to people who might be interested as well. So
0: when it comes to solving problems in financial markets specifically, can you give me an idea of the sort of thing an entrepreneur might be able to look at and attack as a problem in financial markets? You mentioned, for example, uh, AI and machine learning. Are are there other examples or or what would you be looking for a fintech to
5: to be trying to go after? I think in in the exchange industry, if I give you one example, we uh, trade Uh, when you trade on the exchange, uh, say I do a trade with you, it'll typically settle in two days' time. Um, And in that two days, across the world, it's an international standard, you have trillions of dollars of cash and securities moving around. FinTech, particularly distributed ledger technology, has the potential to make that practically instantaneous, which could offer huge efficiencies uh, for the way the markets run. But also, it plays to London as a global financial centre because it'll make it far easier to connect with investors and participants from all over the world. You could trade... Uh, between Australia and Latin America through a London platform um, instantaneously. I, so this is open access that you're talking about, and I think really enabling open
0: access can help. Uh, and you mentioned Australia; we just announced, uh, we just saw the the Chancellor announce a, a partnership with through the FinTech Bridges. How do you think uh, the FinTech Bridges help an organisation like yourselves and some of the fintechs?
5: I think the UK has been right at the forefront of building a global regulatory. Uh, Environment which helps companies like ours um, and also other fintech companies that are smaller get access to other markets around the world. Uh, and we are a global business. Our, we run global pools of liquidity with the most international uh, exchange. Um, and the more that our regulators are cooperating to make it possible for us to operate with new forms of technology in other markets, um, the better. Um, I also think that um, you can see fintech applications being developed here in London, which are having huge social welfare benefits around the world. So, for example, meeting unmet banking needs in Africa, mobile payments, um, M-Pesa, for example, developed here in London, are now used by 18 million Kenyans. I was just there um, last week, um, and they were huge adopters, early adopters uh, of uh, fintech. Absolutely. Uh, Nicole,
0: thank you very much for being on Fintech Insider. If people want to get in touch with the London Stock Exchange, maybe they have a fintech idea. How would they do that?
5: They can uh, go to our website, uh, LondonStockExchange.com, and they can, uh, we've got a dedicated fintech section there. We've also just published a report, uh, Finance for Fintech, where you can um, read, uh, read about uh, what we're doing. In fact, uh, one company from the U.S., a Silicon Valley company, Boku, uh, ends up listing on our market, having uh, uh, connected with us via one of our networks.
0: Uh, Fantastic. So it's, it's not just for show. It's not just theater. It's People just are really doing this stuff. Thing. That's great to hear. Thank you very much, Thank you very much for being much. on the Thanks, podcast. Thanks, Simon. Cheers. Thank you. We wanted to let you know that if you love this show how about seeing it live we're going to be at money 2020 europe in amsterdam this june and we're bringing fintech insider live with us we'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception and you can be there sign up for tickets now go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811fs that's 1811fs to get 200 euros off the ticket price Welcome back to Fintech Insider I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by Adrian Harris who is Chief Business Development Officer and General mm-hmm. Council of States Title Inc. Thank you very much for being on Fintech Insider.
6: Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: so you have had a number of interesting roles, uh, both uh, being a, uh, in the White House National Economic Council, um, Senior Advisor to the uh, kind of Secretary of the Department of the Treasury at the USA. You have a perspective, I think, on financial services that is global. Here today at the uh, UK Fintech Conference, I'm keen to get your reflections on where we're at in financial services, coming out of the financial crisis, fintech has really uh, kind of grown. Where is it at and and what are some of its challenges, do you think?
6: Yeah, I think we're seeing a number of interesting developments in fintech. Namely, when we came out of the financial crisis, fintech was really about disruption and replacing incumbent financial institutions. We've now graduated to a scheme that's much more about collaboration between incumbents and fintechs. Mm -hmm. And I think similarly, we've seen... Uh, a change where fintech was initially very consumer facing and now it's broadened out quite a bit more to to be affecting change on the more institutional side of things. So we've seen the industry evolve quite a bit in a very short amount of time.
0: Super interesting. So obviously strong background in the USA. You'll have probably a different reflection and, uh, of, of kind of the UK's fintech background than, than we would. So what do you think the UK uh, could learn from how the US has been doing with finance? or what do you think the US could learn from the UK in, in that sort of fintech bridge uh, type of analogy.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are a number of things that the UK has done very well that the the US could stand to learn from and take some lessons from, namely coordination and collaboration. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the way that the FCA and the Treasury here have worked with each other and across borders, I think has really been exemplary and and set a good standard for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. I think in the US, we have a a culture of venture capital investment that's really second to none. Mm -hmm. Um, And despite some of the regulatory challenges, we may face with having a number of different regulators, Uh, the investment and the culture of innovation we've had has enabled us to sort of stay at the forefront in terms of developing new fintechs and having lots of fintech entrepreneurs.
0: Indeed. Uh, I think I often look to uh, 2009 when Jack Dorsey started Square as being the beginning of the latest kind of fintech wave. Uh, I'm curious in your thoughts on open banking, because obviously um, it's it's kind of been very driven by regulation uh, in Europe and especially in the UK. Whereas in the US, we are seeing open banking, a number of banks offer APIs. Do you, what do you think of the pros and cons of each approach might be?
6: Yeah, I think the thing that underlies both settings is that both jurisdictions have really decided that it's the consumer that owns their financial data. Mm -hmm. What's different is just what you point out is that the UK has taken a firmer stance around open banking and mandating banks to have the APIs. In the US, it's very one-off. So you see large banks working with a single fintech provider, maybe two fintech providers. And I think ultimately it's going to make for a sort of quirky patchwork of integration that's going to be problematic. So I think this idea that the consumer owns their own information is a great foundation to start from. I think the trend toward open banking is going to be an important thing to follow.
0: So if our listeners and viewers want to check out more about States Title, uh, where can they do so?
6: Uh, So there is a very low-key website at statestitle.com, but I think there'll be more to come in the the near future.
0: Oh, looking forward to it. Very exciting. Thank you very much for being on Fintech Insider. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here with Imran from EY, who is the global head of fintech. How are you, sir? I'm really good. Nice to to be here. Thank you so much for being on Fintech Insider. It means a lot to have you. Um, First of all, can you tell us a little bit about your role in implementing open banking?
7: Yes. So I actually, as you say, I'm a partner at EY and I run the fintech practice there. But in reality, what I've been spending my time doing for the last year is seconded into open banking, Mm -hmm. where I am, I've got a title, it's called the Implementation Trustee. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually responsible to the Competition Markets Authority for building out the standards for open banking and
0: ensuring that the nine largest banks in the UK implement them properly. Ah, implement them properly. That's uh, that's a really interesting challenge to to have. So we saw that open banking went live a good number of weeks ago now here in the UK, uh, but we hadn't necessarily seen people adopt it straight away. Sure. What do you think some of the challenges were that, that we had in the early set? And, and is that starting to change now? Yeah. So we're
7: really proud of actually going live on the 13th of January with version one of open banking. And this is the important thing. Um, in November, we actually agreed with the banks and with government that we we were going to extend the open banking implementation all the way through to the end of PSD2, which is something called RTS. there are three or four more releases to come before we've actually say that the job is done. Um, you should think about version 1 on the 13th of January really as the MVP of open banking. Um, we're very proud of it because we were the first in the world to do that. We're the first in the world to use a standard. And about two weeks after we went live, um, the first ever API uh, uh, transaction was executed by a Dutch fintech called Yolt. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, we have now got real customers going through the platform. But, you know, we needed to do this in a very safe and secure way. So we didn't just go all of market on day one. Um, of course, what we did is a little bit like a beta version. And, you know, we are trying to make the whole initiative look like a fintech. Um, we restricted it on day one. We restricted it to product reference accounts. So these are imaginary accounts that were all owned by the banks. Ah. But the point is, is they went through the live production environment. Interesting. And then the next step, once we were happy that that flowed, um, and there was a point where we had something like fifty engineers watch a penny go from one <laughs> fake account to another fake account, um, but a hugely hugely but on a live period, system. But in the live production environment, exactly. So, so the way that many of the banks work is that they actually, when they bring new products to market, they will have these. I keep calling them fake accounts. The imaginary account would be a much better mm-hmm. term, or a virtual account. There's no customer that sits behind it. It's the bank's own money. Mm-hmm. And you know, when the first contact cards were contact cards were created, that's precisely where the tr- transactions went through. But we're through that phase. Then we went through to staff members, originally staff members of banks, Mm -hmm. staff members of the Open Banking Implementation Entity. So I've got 125 people working for me building all this. This is a major, major initiative. They tried it. um, And now we are just at the stage where some real customers um, who have no relationship with the bank are actually trialing it. And the early indications from that are really exciting. They're really exciting, obviously, we're happy that it works and it's safe and secure, but the conversion rates are really high. Mm. And what do I mean by that? Um, it's very important because this stuff has existed for a long time. It existed in an un- unauthorized, unregulated space. We course.
0: had Yodley. We had other screen scraping, as it was known. You guys would
7: have discussed that for a lo- very long time. Mm. But with screen scraping, of course, you're, the fintech is asking the customer to share their username and password. Mm. And of course, whilst they can do that under PSD2, question mark as to whether or not it's the right thing to do. But what it really meant is that the conversion rates were very low. Mm -hmm. Um, And now, actually, we're finding that under open banking APIs, no customer has to use it. It's an explicit opt-in. It's explicit consent. And you never, ever have to share your username and password with any institution other than your bank. Mm -hmm. So that level of confidence has really It's very small numbers at the moment,
0: which is fine. We want it to grow slowly, but it's shown that conversion rates are really high. You mentioned contactless. I think that's a really interesting example because the early days of contactless, I remember working for an issuer processor when contactless was being switched on in the UK in sort of 2008-9 and even earlier than that in some cases. And there was a bit of a pushback and a bit of a ballyhoo in the media because there were lo- small numbers. People weren't really using it. And we sit here in 2018 and you can't move for contactless. London is held up as in the UK, of all of the UK is held up as the poster child for how you do contactless. And obviously, Singapore and, and Australia have done well as well. Do you think we're looking at that sort of time horizon or do you think there will be momentum that we start to see this year with real products and services? Um,
7: I think the analogy with contactless is great. Um, where it breaks down is that contactless is very much one product, it's one offering, it's one piece of functionality. What open banking does is it enables many, many use cases. So if you think about that adoption curve, which is kind of hockey stick or exponential is a good way of describing it, what we've got is, let's say I can think of 15, we've got a long list of 75, 15 really exciting use cases, and each one of those is going to move up on its own
0: trajectory. So when you take a step back, it might look a bit linear, but every single one will be overlaid on that. And that is interesting because, again, with contactless, you had uh, the schemes, the visas, the Mastercards that were able to really push it because they saw benefit, you had a single focal point. Mm -hmm. Do you see the role of the Open Banking Implementation Entity really helping drive that into the industry and and actually helping educate maybe incumbents and fintechs what some of the benefits could be, as well as how to keep it secure and how to keep Consumers safe.
7: Yeah, it's very interesting. When the Competition Markets Authority put this entire structure together, we didn't have an explicit KPI around the no obvious mandate. Yeah, there was no, no, and and you do have it in some situations. So for current account switching, there is, but for open banking, there isn't. The reason for it is we don't know. We're building an enabling technology, mm-hmm. and we're reliant on other innovators to really take it forward and promote it in the marketplace. And that's absolutely
0: fine. Imran, thank you very much for being on FinTech Insider. Not at all. Stay in touch at FinTechInsiders on Twitter or find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or you can just email. Email podcasts at 11fs.com and don't forget, subscribe to our podcast. Uh, please leave us a review for us on iTunes. We love reading those reviews and they help us so much. And that's all for now. Goodbye.